Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good afternoon. My name is Nadia Sheikh. I'm a professor of history, and I'm currently vice provost for cultural and research engagement at NYU Abu Dhabi. So I'm really delighted to welcome you here at the Institute at 19. Um, for a talk by Professor Abigail Balbali. Today's lecture is our last lecture in our series on the legacy of Al-Andalus. The previous four lectures took place in Abu Dhabi uh, with doctors Maribel Fierro, Cristina de la Puente, uh, Mariam Rosser Owen, and Hossam Shashia. The lecture this afternoon is a collaboration between four entities at NYU, New York, in addition to 19 here, to the Institute at 19, namely the Department of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies. And thank you, Mr. Chair, and Jackie Lockman was my teacher a long time ago. At the Kevorkian Center, the King Juan Carlos Center, and the Premodern Islamic World Lecture Series, I guess that's your series, um, and I truly hope that uh, these collaborations will increase uh, in the uh, months uh, that come. Al-Andalus, for those of you who may not know, uh, is a term used by historians uh, to refer to the period when Muslim sovereigns ruled over parts of the Iberian Peninsula. It begins in 711 with the arrival on the peninsula of a small Muslim force led by Tar ibn Ziyad and ends in 1492 with the fall of Granada. However, the historical career of Al-Andalus does not abruptly end with the defeat of the Nasrid rulers in Granada in 1492. The legacy of Al-Andalus continues to exert its presence in a myriad of ways. Moshahat poetry is one of them. And this April, the Art Center at NYU Abu Dhabi will host a performance by Faraj Abiyad, who is based in New York, entitled Andalusian Love Story, a performance of original compositions that is inspired by classical and contemporary Andalusian poetry. So I'm truly delighted that the Institute at Washington Square North has managed to bring this series in Al-Andalus to, um, you know, to NYU New York with this lecture by Abigail Balbale, who is assistant professor of Islamic history here at NYU, where she teaches and researches at the intersection of history, art history, and Islamic studies. Dr. Balbali received her PhD in history and Middle Eastern studies uh, from Harvard in 2012, and has published numerous articles on uh, jihad and the holy war ideology, the art and architecture of Al-Muhad Al 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 dynasty. Uh, I edited two books and co-authored with Geraldine Dodds and Maria Rosa Menocal, the prize-winning book entitled The Arts of Intimacy, Christians, Jews, and Muslims in the Making of Castilian Culture, published by Yale in 2008. This afternoon, she will be discussing her new book, just out of the press, The Wolf King, which explores how political power was conceptualized, constructed, and wielded in 12th century Andalus, focusing on the reign of Ibn Mardanish. Thank you, Abigail. And the floor is yours. 
Thank you so much, Nadia, for that lovely introduction, for the invitation to present my new book, and to all of you for being here today. Um, on this day, March 27th, in 1172, a Muslim ruler named Muhammad ibn Sa'ad ibn Ahmed ibn Mardanish died in his capital city of Murcia in southeastern Al-Andalus. During his quarter century in power, Ibn Mardanish was the single most formidable enemy of the Almohad Empire, which by the mid-12th century stretched across most of North Africa and conquered the rest of Al-Andalus in the decades that followed. He continued to fight off Almohad armies until his death in 1172. But with his death, his dynasty ended. His sons submitted to the Almohads and were integrated into the Caliphate's elites. Two of his daughters married the Caliph and the future Caliph and his territories, palaces, mosques, and castles were incorporated into the Almohad Empire. Most of the Arabic chronicles that survive are from the perspective of his Almohad enemies, which cast Ibn Mardanish as an impious, recalcitrant rebel. But as I'll outline this afternoon, and as my book describes in more detail, exploiting a wider range of sources, including architecture and material culture, gives us a sense of the incredible richness of Ibn Mardanish's polity and its transformative effect on the kingdoms, Muslim and Christian, that succeeded them. So this is my book. Um, this figure, known as the Wolf King in, uh, in Christian sources, El Rey Lobo in Castilian sources, and Rex Lupus in Latin sources, does not fit neatly into the typical paradigms for the histories of the 11th and 12th centuries in Al-Andalus. Those histories often portray the North African-based Berber dynasties of the Almoravids and Almohads as being locked in conflict with Andalusis. Neither does he fit into the teleological narrative of Christian Muslim enmity, often called the Reconquista, a construct that imagines Christians united to fight Muslim invaders for a period of some 700 years. Ibn Mardanish broke every mold. He allied with the kings of Castile, Aragon, and Barcelona, formed trade agreements with the Italian merchant cities of Genoa and Pisa, and garnered posthumous praise from a pope as wolf king of glorious memory. He even appeared in Castilian documents as a vassal to Alfonso VIII, the child king whose regency caused strife among the noble families of Castile and Aragon. At the same time, Ibn Mardanish was at pains to present himself as a standard bearer of the Abbasid Caliphate in the Islamic West. He minted gold coins in the name of the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad for the first time on the Iberian Peninsula. And as an Andalusian emir for the Abbasids, vassal to the Castilian king, rival to the nascent Almohad Caliphate, who managed to gain and maintain power over nearly half of Al-Andalus for a quarter of a century, the Wolf King deserves our attention. So in my talk this afternoon, I will discuss, I'll trace his trajectory as a ruler and then discuss how modern ideas about geography and race have transformed the memory of Al-Andalus and Al-Andalus more generally, uh, the memory of Ibn Mardanish and Al-Andalus more generally. Um, so ideas about Ibn Mardanish have transformed over time as his territory was lost first to the Almohads and then split between Castile and Aragon, as the last kingdoms of Al-Andalus fell, and as scholars in Spain and beyond attempted to make sense not only of, uh, of him, but of Iberia's Islamic past more generally. And his story 
illuminates not only the dynamism of politics and culture in the medieval Western Mediterranean, but also how its complexity has been flattened to serve modern ideologies. Historians writing after Ibn Mardanisha's death have often sought to fit him into categories, geographic, genealogical, temporal, the 12th century figure would not have recognized. I'll start now with an anecdote from the beginning of my research. I wrote a dissertation uh, that looked at a series of Muslim rulers um, across the 12th and 13th centuries in Al-Andalus. And one of them was Ibn Mardanish. But I became increasingly obsessed with this single figure. So after finishing the dissertation, I turned to uh, a book exclusively on him. And this is one of the reasons why. When reading a mid 20th century edition of a 13th century source by Abdel Wahid al Marrakashi, I was astonished to find a footnote about Ibn Mardanish that cast him as belonging to the Spanish nation and suspicious in his Islam. While al Marrakashi, the 13th century author, describes how Ibn Mardanish gained power as he was clearly very uh, brave and rich, I'll show you the translation here. Um, I've heard. Um, he has abundant bravery and is very capable, and maybe God will benefit the Muslims through him. This is a description of how Ibn Ranadish gained power. Then the 20th century editors inserted a footnote saying, a hereditary disposition had inclined Ibn Mardanish towards Spain because he resembled the Christian kings in his clothes and his weapons, and most of his army was Spanish mercenaries, and therefore he was suspicious in his religion, and he was linked with the kings of the Christians, giving them presents and kindnesses, and perhaps asking them for help against the Muslims in his wars. So how is it that a 13th century source refers to a figure as brave and, um, and capable, and perhaps uh, designated by God? And the 20th century source, refer to him as being by heritage Christian, inclining toward the Christians and helping them. What do these disparate responses to the same figure written seven centuries apart tell us about how historical narratives develop and change over time? Why did this particular figure's treatment change so dramatically across the centuries? And what can it tell us about changing attitudes toward race, identity, and Islam? These fascinating questions made me uh, turn in writing the book that emerged from my dissertation to focus exclusively on Ibn Mardanish. And when I began this book in 2012, I could not have imagined the increasing popularity of Ibn Mardanish in the decade that would follow. Um, so I'm just going to show you, uh, this is the table of contents. I, there's a lot in the table of contents I will not be talking to you about today because I only have 45 minutes. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what kinds of sources can give us access to knowledge about Ibn Mardanish himself. And then I'll talk about uh, how the memory of his time and power shifted after his death and then even further in the 19th and 20th centuries. So who was Ibn Mardanish? We have this problem. He was a ruler who failed in that his dynasty ended when he died. All of the written sources that we have um, come from his rivals or his enemies or his successors. Um, uh, we have some sources from Christian uh, chronicles and, um, and documents that give us another perspective from the one that the Almohads give us, but we don't have anything produced in his realm. 
So the kinds of sources that I used to access his program of um, legitimation included biographical dictionaries, looking for the scholars who were living in his territories while he was in power, um, chancery documents. I don't have chancery documents from his court, but I have the responses from the Almohad. So I'm dealing with half of the correspondence. And that's very interesting because you can get a sense looking at those responses, what his letters might have said. Um, I have compilations of poetry made by poets in his territory. And um, for the purposes of my talk today, I, I'm going to focus a lot on the material sources that I used. That is architecture, archaeological evidence, and material culture. Um, and, uh, and we have various pieces written by his, uh, his enemies and successors, which I also use with a very clear eye to recognizing their biases and thinking about what we can excavate from these sources um, how we can read them against the grain to get some uh, information that might not be what they're trying to give us. So um, this is the territory that he ruled as depicted in a 12th century map um, by Al-Idrisi. Um, so it's oriented with south up. And I don't, can you see my mouse if I move my mouse? I don't, no? Okay. Um, so this side, you can see it's Shafal Andalus, the that's where he rules, the eastern half of Al-Andalus, from his capital at Murcia. Um, and this is what the world looked like when he was young. Um, this, is, this is the Mediterranean around 1100. You can see that the Almoravid dynasty rules from um, essentially Mali and Ghana in the south up to um, Toledo in the north. Um, so massive empire. They don't rule Toledo. They, they, they rule to the outskirts of Toledo. They try to get Toledo and fail. Um, so a massive north-south empire. Uh, Ibn Mardanish's father was a military commander in the Almoravid armies. Um, and uh, so he was born into a, a military elite of the Almoravid dynasty, but was of Andalusi descent and uh, Andalusi birth. So his, the question of his descent is one that we'll talk more about. Um, the other big rivals of, of the Almoravids, um, or they're not even rivals of the Almoravids, the Almoravids declare uh, loyalty to the Abbasids in Baghdad, just as the Seljuks who are holding most of the power in the Islamic East do as well. So you'll see I have Abbasid Seljuks marked um, on the Eastern part of the map. And then the Fatimids are another caliphate that rule um, uh, claiming to have authority over the entire Islamic world, but essentially at this point rule over um, greater Egypt. Um, by 1150, this world has changed rather dramatically. Um, in the East, which is not on this map, we have the Crusader kingdoms that have been established. Um, and, uh, and here we have a new dynasty that, it, that emerges from the Atlas Mountains of North Africa and um, spreads east-west across much of North Africa and also incorporates a lot of the territory of Al-Andalus. Um, but as you can see, this the light gray area is the territory that Ibn Mardanish manages to carve out for himself. And he is essentially an Almoravid loyalist. Um, so he's following the model of the Almoravids before him and he's fighting the Almohads. And he's doing so in collaboration with his Christian neighbors. Um, so... Uh, what we have, the sources we have, include a whole series of castles, and um, they're spread across in the ent entirety of his reign, um, uh, his whole his whole dominion, his whole territory. Um, that what you see on the left is a digital reconstruction of the two sites you see on the right. Um, these are the buildings I'll be talking most about today, along with his palace in Murcia. Um, 
And uh, they were part of what's called a munya in Arabic, or a productive rural estate, um, where rulers could um, be removed from the hustle and bustle of the city, uh, host guests and ambassadors and courtiers, um, and also uh, grow food, um, often sort of luxury fruits and vegetables for themselves. Um, so we have we have various indications that he would receive visitors here from other from other kingdoms. Um, just to give you a sense of the, the territory that he covered, and he's only in power for 25 years. He manages to build or revive castles across the entire length of his territory. You can see the line of them going down on the map on the left. Um, some of them we know from archaeological excavations, and some of them we just know from texts. And you can't quite see it in this map, but this is a photo I took from one of his castles looking across Murcia to the other castle. And it is possible from one castle to see the next castle. So the idea is that there would be ways to pass messages using smoke um, or by people riding very fast between these, between these castles, which ties together his territory into a space that can actually be controlled. Um, and can be unified. And through a kind of itinerant kingship, he would have been moving through these territories as well. So genealogy um, is something that mattered to Ibn Mardanish, but not in the way that the 20th century editors thought. So the 20th century editors say his descent was Christian. He was he, he inclined toward the Christians. He said that he was, depending on which source you look at, Judami or Tujibi. Um, which which suggests that he was either from the the Arabian tribe of Judam or from the Arabian tribe of Tujib, um, and we don't know which one of these he himself claimed because we're looking at these sources that are not his own. Um, but the idea is that because Arabic names indicate descent, that he is Muhammad ibn Saad ibn Muhammad ibn Ahmed ibn Mardanish. He gets called ibn Mardanish. I argue because people are fixated on, on, on his potentially non-Muslim antecedent. In his time, he was known as Muhammad ibn Saad. Um, so already calling him Ibn Mardanish is kind of a pejorative. Um, and if, if Mardanish comes, as a lot of scholars think, from an Arabization of a Christian name like Martinez, then that would have placed the conversion of this ancestor to Islam sometime around 1050, which according to Richard Bullitt's uh, chart of conversion to Islam in the medieval period in Spain would have put him right in the middle of the, the late majority of converts. So this is a moment um, in the middle of the 11th century across the Islamic world, sorry, the middle of the 12th century across the Islamic world, where the population under Islamic rule is finally majority Muslim. Depending on the territory, the exact year varies, but this is this is something new because for most of the Islamic period, the um, up to this point, the majority of the population under Islamic rule was non-Muslim. So we have in both the Islamic East and the Islamic West new groups who are relatively recently converted, trying to assert their power um, and trying to fit themselves into the, the context of the Arab Caliphate. So the um, the Seljuks are doing that in the East. The Almoravids and Almohads are doing that in the West. Um, the Seljuks are a Turkic people. The Almoravids and the Almohads are Berber. Um, but they're all trying to integrate themselves into this context of the um, of the Arab uh, Caliphate. And Ibn Mardanish, I argue, is trying to do the same. Um, so that's that's what people tend to think that his ancestor, um, four generations back, converted 
from Christianity to Islam. And that may be the case. If that's the case, there were lots of other people converting um, from Christianity to Islam at about that point. But we have a tombstone that is uh, that belonged to an unnamed sister of Ibn Mardanish, uh, which has an inscription that says that she is the daughter of Abu Uthman Saad. That's Saad is Ibn Mardanish's father. Ibn Mardanish, Ibn Muhammad, may God have mercy on him, which would seem to suggest that Mardanish was the son of somebody who was already Muslim. Now, does this mean that he was in fact the son of a Muhammad, or is this a mistake that somebody inverted the names when they weren't supposed to, or is Ibn Mardanish or somebody else in his time trying to present themselves as coming from a long line of Muslims? All of these are possibilities, but it's interesting because it suggests that there may be another means how this name um, came into uh, into parlance. I mean, we have a really wonderful uh, anecdote from Ibn Khalikan, um, the 13th century biographical scholar who argues that Mardanish comes from the romance word for human excrement, i.e. that Mardanish comes from mierda. Um, this is probably not where the name comes from, um, but uh, it may actually come from the waterway Merdanish in Navarre, which in turn may have its name for uh, the human excrement that clouded its waters. So it's possible actually that Ibn Khalikan was partially right. Um, so this may be a toponym, it may be, it may be a name based on conversion uh, or a name uh, that got transformed by conversion. We don't know. Um, so, uh, it could just be an unusual name that, that entered the genealogy through other means. Um, <clears throat> regardless of his ancestry, Ibn Mardanish, like many other founders of new dynasties across the Islamic world, presented his legitimacy through material reference to his predecessors and contemporaries. The forms he chose for his coins and his palaces, his gardens and his waterworks constituted an expression of a cultural genealogy that augmented his power and could serve as a shorthand for what he considered to be righteous authority. In his coins, Ibn Mardanish linked himself with the Sunni traditions of the Caliphate and with Umayyad and Abbasid precedents while challenging Al-Mohad claims. The right to rule in Islam is symbolized by khutbah and sikka, that is the Friday prayer being said in one's name and in minting coins. Both Ibn Mardanish and the first Al-Mohad Caliph, Abdul Mu'min, began minting gold coins shortly after gaining power, which is traditionally the prerogative of the Caliph. So minting gold coins in the first place is already a really strong assertion of power. In the year 1152, after nearly all of his fellow Andalusi rulers had submitted to the Almohads, Ibn Mardanish minted gold coins with a radically new legend, acknowledging the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad by name. You can see his name here, um, Abu Abdullah Muhammad al-Muqtafi the Amrullah, um, the Abbasid commander of the faithful. Just in case anyone was in doubt, he says al-Abbasi, okay? This is, this is the Abbasid guy. Um, and given Al-Andalus's long tradition of independence from the Abbasid Caliphate, and that even the pro-Abbasid Almoravids never included the name of the Abbasid Caliph on their coins, Ibn Mardanish's decision to write the Caliph's full name demonstrates an unprecedented and dramatic shift in the ideology of independent rulership in Al-Andalus. 
that sent a clear message to the Almohads, who were claiming a caliphate of their own, that he was unwilling to acquiesce to their form of rule, and that he instead recognized the Sunni tradition embodied by the current Abbasid caliph. So in addition to adding the name of the Abbasid Caliph, these new coins also included a phrase that tied Ibn Mardanish to a broad tradition of Islamic rulership and that associated him with the Caliphate. He wrote, he holds fast to the rope of God, uh, reference to Quran 3.103, which exhorts believers to hold onto the rope of God in order to avoid division within the Ummah. The image of the rope of God was, from the early Islamic period, closely associated with the caliphate, and Umayyad caliphs were frequently described in poetry as the embodiment of God's rope, connecting the believers to God. Ibn Martinish is not claiming that he is the rope of God, but um, he's reminding his subjects and his rivals of, their, of his piety and their duty to avoid division amongst themselves. It also suggests that Ibn Mardanish was consciously presenting himself as the defender of the caliphate and of the unity of believers. Um, these inscriptions also respond to the inscriptions on Almohad coins being produced at the same time, um, uh, which, while also uh, with Quranic inscriptions, um, it shows their their understandings of political power and their relationship to God were dramatically different. So the central legends on the earliest Almohad gold dinars say, there's no God but God, Muhammad is the messenger of God. And then the Mahdi, that is Ibn Tumart, the founder of the Almohad dynasty, is the Imam of the Ummah, the enactor of God's command, Al-Qa'im bi Amr Allah. Um, so this phrase, Al-Qa'im bi Amr Allah, sounds a lot like a renial title. Um, in its form, and it parallels the names of earlier caliphs, but its meaning surpasses the traditional role of the Sunni caliph. Ibn Tumart is the one who enacts the will of God in creating the Almohad dynasty, and the caliphs who followed him, rather than being successors to the Prophet Muhammad, are successors to the Mahdi, um, and they gain authority through his divinely sanctioned revolution. Ibn Mardanisha's coin in naming the Abbasid caliph, whose ruling title also includes the command of God, al-Muqtafi the Amr Allah, um, undermined this claim with reference to the standard Sunni vision of the caliphate. So in these coins, Ibn Mardanish is, is challenging the Almohads on both a political and an ideological basis. And just as the Almohads sought to reformulate the traditional conception of the caliphate in favor of a new North African messianic one, so too did they reject the ruling culture that had flourished in the Islamic world, but had its roots in far earlier imperial contexts. Ibn Mardanish, on the other hand, became the champion of a princely culture that had flourished in the Taifa period and the Umayyad period, and that was in vogue in the 12th century across the Mediterranean world associating himself with the Abbasid and Fatimid caliphates and in opposition to, the, to Almohad austerity. So Ibn Mardanish's palace in Murcia, called Dara Sughra, contains remarkable polychromatic figural paintings, as well as elaborate stucco depictions of stylized animals and vegetal designs. You see what I'm working with here. These are literally fragments um, uh, of carved stucco, which is cheap, and relatively easy to work, so it's well-suited to geometric and vegetal forms used throughout the Islamic world, and had become the standard form for uh, the walls of, of Islamic palaces. 
His palace incorporated stucco fragments with lotus flowers, pine cones, and palmettes curling around each other, as well as zoomorphic fragments like this bird or harpy with a row of roundels across its wing echoing textiles. Um, <clears throat> we also have um, elements of his um, stucco carvings that show uh, Arabic inscriptions on them. In fact, it's almost as though this is his motto, as appears across all of his buildings. This phrase, Al-Yuman Wal-Iqbal, written in an orthographically strange form that I argue is adapted from Fatimid textiles that were circulating in Al-Andalus. Um, in addition, we also have fragments of stucco painting from the Mukarnas Dome of Dara Sohra, um, which uh, include uh, a female musician playing the flute, the red turbaned head of a man, a bearded man enclosed within an arch, and the torso of a woman frozen mid-dance. Where do these images come from? Um, the Almohads were uh, very austere architecturally. They, their preference for unadorned walls softened in later years, but in this early period, they never used figural paintings in their buildings. And where it did incorporate ornament, Almohad architecture used geometric and vegetal stucco designs very similar to those found in Ibn Mardanish's palace. And the Almoravids had done the same before them. But Ibn Mardanish uses these designs to frame girls dancing for princes images that were not only directly opposed to Almohad artistic norms, but also their notoriously rigid attitudes toward music, dancing, and gatherings of mixed gender. Uh, Ibn Tumart, the Mahdi, the founder of the Almohad dynasty, was famous for breaking wine casks and drums, for interrupting parties and destroying them. Um, the Almohads were known to be so opposed to figural representation and polychromy that the people of Fez preemptively whitewashed their congregational mosque the night before the triumphant arrival of the caliph. So these images are not just anti-Almohad propaganda, however. They probably also reflected the activities that took place within the walls of Ibn Mardanish's palace. Um, a lot of chroniclers fixate on Ibn Mardanish's love of drinking, his use of singing slave girls or kiyan, wind instruments, and dancing. But these images do not represent an exceptional Andalusi case of figuration. They continue an ancient tradition of courtly culture adapted by the earliest Muslim rulers from Roman models, uh, which depict dancers, drinkers, musicians, and hunting scenes. Images of musicians and dancing girls were central components of the wall paintings in Umayyad and Abbasid palaces. And in the 11th and 12th centuries, these images were particularly in vogue in Fatimid Egypt, where they were painted on lusterware ceramics um, and uh, also on the walls of bathhouses. Um, at this point, um, uh, at nearly the same time that Ibn Mardanish is building his palace and put the, putting these images on Mukarnas, which are geometric squinches, um, uh, we have the same kinds of geometric squinches being made into the ceiling of the Capella Palatina for um, Norman ruler Roger II, um, which also show seated, turbaned princes drinking and dancing girls. So here you so see three different versions of a dancer in the same position from Qusayr Amra, the Umayyad Palace in the Jordanian Desert in the eighth century, the Norman Capella Palatina in Sicily, and Ibn Mardanish's daughter Sohra. Of course, his is much more fragmentary, but it's very clearly the same pictorial tradition. <clears throat> so in both his coinage and his architecture, Ibn Mardanish presented himself 
as a righteous Muslim ruler, attuned to the forms of power current in the Islamic East and in the Mediterranean world. In his coins inscriptions and the visual language of the paintings on his palace walls, Ibn Mardanish was arguing against the Almohad conception of the caliphate and in favor of Sunni traditions of authority. And surrounding himself with the phrases and iconography associated with the caliphate of the East, he was presenting himself as its standard bearer in the West. But the way Ibn Mardanish presented himself has not maintained its associations across the centuries. The author of an otherwise excellent article about Ibn Mardanish's coinage pauses after noting his use of Quran 318, a phrase associated with the Almoravids on his coins, to say he could not have legitimately believed in the righteousness of the Maliki vision of government. He says, such a man as Ibn Sa'd, known for his drunkenness and debauchery, could scarcely have been an ardent defender of the puritanical cause of the Malikis. So in the next section, I'm going to turn to how Ibn Mardanish's treatment changed over time to yield the nearly universal vision of him as an impious or potentially even crypto-Christian traitor to Islam. The chronicle that we have that gives us the most detail about Ibn Mardanish's time and power and about the early Almohad period is by Ibn Sahib Salah, who is an Andalusi from, um, from what's now Portugal, who converted to Almohadism. So the Almohads required even Muslims to convert to their particular vision of Islam. Um, uh, he had been Muslim. He converted to Almohadism in 1165 when he attended lessons on Almohad Tawheed in Marrakesh. And then he served as a functionary in the court of Caliph Yusuf I. And this chronicle Al-Mandal al-Mama was originally composed as a three-volume history, but only the central volume survives, which covers the years 1159 to 1173. It's one of very few works of history actually produced during the Almohad period and um, from within Almohad territories. So it offers a really important perspective on this period. Given the period that is covered, um, uh, which is basically from the peak of uh, Ibn Mardanish's power to the year after his death, it's not surprising that he plays a really central role in this narrative. Um, but the ubiquity of Ibn Mardanish in this uh, volume is, is, gives us a sense of just how important he was to the Almohad struggle for power. So what you're looking at is the very first sentence of the surviving volume of Ibn Sahib Salah's chronicle. Um, and you can see that he... He tries to emphasize Ibn Mardanish's um, closeness with Christians. He calls, um, he says his army and his companions, ashabihi, that means friends or companions, the Christians. So throughout the chronicle, he frequently refers to the armies fighting alongside Ibn Mardanish as his Christian friends. Um, and he regularly says, you know, may, uh, in his deviance, and impelled by wine, Ibn Mardanish did X, Y, or Z. Um, the reason Ibn Mardanish is interested, I mean, the reason uh, Ibn Sahib Salah is interested in pre presenting Ibn Mardanish as impious and debauched and drunk um, is that he's trying to emphasize the, um, uh, the, the ways in which this man needs to be conquered by the righteous Almohads. Al Right, he is attempting to delegitimate Ibn Mardanish by referring constantly to his Christian companions. Ibn Mardanish had mercenaries in his army who were Christian. He was allied with Christian kings. He often fought alongside Christian kings. So did the Almohads, um, though we don't see that written about in Ibn Sahib Salah. There was a lot of interreligious alliance facilitated by intra-religious violence. So, two Muslim rivals 
fighting each other would often bring in their Christian companions. So these wars between Muslims would end up becoming sort of proxy wars with Christians as well. Um, so Al-Mohad authors frequently mention his Christian companions, but they do not suggest that he was a Christian or even that he had Christian ancestors. Um, the turning point for thinking about uh, his Christianness himself comes in the 14th century um, in the writing of Ibn al-Khatib. So Ibn al-Khatib um, was a Nasrid statesman, um, and he probably wrote Kitab al-Ma'al al-Alam when he was in exile from the Nasrid court in Marinid Tlemcen between 1372 and 1374, shortly before he would be executed on charges of heresy by the Nasrid ruler Muhammad V. It aimed to be a universal history of Islamic rule with substantial portions devoted to Iberia and North Africa. And it includes several pages of discussion on Ibn Mardanish and his dominion in Sharq al-Andalus. In an illustrative passage, Ibn Mardanish began with a description of Ibn Mardanish's great physical strength and his gallantry. He continued by describing the ruler's love of wine, how he competed with fellow warriors in drinking games, with prizes that included silver drinking vessels and carpets. Not only was Ibn Mardanish a great drinker, but he was also a great lover who could bed 200 serving girls under a single blanket. I still don't understand what that means. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and then he continues with what follows here. Uh, Ibn Mardanish had a propensity toward wearing Christian clothes, tight clothes. Interesting side note, Christians were not wearing tight clothes in the 12th century. Christians began wearing tight clothes in the late 13th and early 14th century when they started wearing different kinds of armor. So in the time of Ibn, uh, Ibn al-Khatib, Christians are wearing tight clothes. In the time of Ibn Mardanish, they're not wearing tight clothes. So this is a clearly something added in in the 14th century. Riding ambling workhorses, i.e. not fast Arabian steeds. He's riding those big, slow Christian horses. Uh, and he uses saddles with thick saddle bows. He sought help from the Christians in his planning. He arranged for helpers and soldiers from them. He built for them in Murcia buildings that included taverns and churches. He was in need of money, so he violated his subjects with every kind of injustice. And he made too many agreements, and he prescribed astonishing levels of customs taxes. Maksmakus, this is the kind of taxation that is explicitly called out in the Quran as um, un-Islamic. Uh, there's, uh, in the Quran, a phrase that says, in the sahib and maksfinar, the person who uses this kind of tax is in fire. It goes to hell. Um, and he settled such a number of livestock on the land that provisions were required. Aha, so here is the root of that weird 20th century footnote. This is exactly what the 20th century editors are saying. But um, what Ibn, Ibn al-Khatib is doing here by focusing on Ibn Mardanisha's dissolute behavior is suggesting a moral equivalency between the ruler and his Christian allies. Um, and Ibn al-Khatib's focus on Ibn Mardanish's drinking and womanizing, his form-fitting Christian-style clothing, his Christian-like horse and saddle, was read by later scholars as proof of Ibn Mardanish's insincerity as a Muslim. But this departs dramatically from earlier descriptions of Ibn Mardanish by the same author. Um, so in an earlier uh, work, um, the Ihata, um, Ibn al-Khatib uh, described in the biography of somebody who was a companion of Ibn Mardanish how brave and, and, um, and effective Ibn Mardanish was on the battlefield. Um, so there's this whole story about the emir being extraordinary, that is Ibn, Ibn Mardanish being extraordinarily patient, attacking again and again without interruption. Um, this battle 
Al-Jalab that he's describing is one against the Almohads. Um, and he reports uh, in, in later in this biography that um, he had an exchange, Ibn Martination, one of his viziers had an exchange um, uh, and uh, Al-Hatim, whose biography this is, um, made, teased another, teased this vizier for how poorly he lived up to his namesake among the companions of the Prophet Muhammad. And Ibn, Ibn Mardanish was so moved, Tariba, by a reference to an early pious companion of the Prophet that he, he starts crying, right? So this is a man who's being described as extraordinarily brave, extraordinarily capable on the battlefield, and deeply pious. Um, so he embodies the traditional virtues of manliness and bravery in battle without arrogance. And he's, he's, um, this seems entirely distinct from that, uh, other vision of, um, of him in Ibn al-Khatib's later work. Um, so this is also where we get the narrative about serving girls under a single blanket. It's, it appears here as well. We have both sets of narrative appearing here. Um, so a much more complex set of sources. He's clearly compiling sources from many earlier works. And he actually claims that most of the negative stuff that he has to say about Ibn Mardanish comes from a lost work by Ibn Sahib Salah, um, uh, which makes sense because Ibn Sahib Salah is frequently talking about Ibn Mardanish's dissoluteness and his drinking and his sleeping with women and, um, and his Christian companions. So in his earlier work, Ibn al-Khatib is putting all of these things into the book. Um, but later, as Ibn, al uh, Ibn al-Khatib is sent into exile and about to be ex uh, executed by the Nasrids, who were also a Muslim dynasty who were vassal to the Castilians, I argue that he... Um, critiqued Ibn Mardanish as an oblique critique of his erstwhile patrons. That is, while in exile, he writes about this ruler who'd ruled two centuries earlier, talking about how he had become dissolute and, um, and how he was defeated as a kind of a warning to the Nasrids. Um, so... What's interesting is that in the years that follow, including in the 17th century, when um, Ahmed al-Makari writes his magisterial nafatib, um, which becomes the resource for all later scholars working on al-Andalus, because um, it brings together all of these earlier narratives, the same story that we saw in Ibn al-Khatib about um, Ibn Mardanish's bravery in battle is changed in one important way. That is, instead of acknowledging that this battle in which he was extraordinarily fierce and brave was one against the Almohads, fellow Muslims, here they're explicitly made into Christians. Because Al-Makari, writing in the, 12th, in the 17th century, can't imagine that anyone in Al-Andalus in the 12th century would have been praised for fighting fellow Muslims. So he transforms and whitewashes the narrative. Um, <clears throat> uh, El-Makari also in other parts of the book describes Ibn Mardanish as a man of Christian origin who profited from the chaos of the end of Almoravid rule by seizing control of Eastern Al-Andalus and who sometimes recognized the shame inherent in alliances with Christians against fellow Muslims. And El-Makari also explicitly pointed out Ibn Mardanish's Christian roots. Um, so we've seen um, uh, how in late medieval and early modern chronicles and continuing well into contemporary scholarship, which is what I'll talk about next, 
Long and diverse treatments of Ibn Bardanish have been condensed into shorter and more anecdotal ones, producing a one-dimensional vision of him as an impious Muslim who had Christian ancestry and loyalties. The result has been an understanding of Ibn Mardanish as either an ideologically toothless Andalusi Muslim, lacking the religious fervor necessary to defend besieged Al-Andalus from the Christians, or as a proto-secular Spanish nationalist hero who fought the intolerance of the foreign Almohad interlopers because of his stronger loyalty to his fellow Iberians than to his fellow Muslims. But both of these visions seek to explain why an Andalusi ruler might ally with Christians against Muslims at the time of the so-called Reconquista, a narrative that imagines the Christians uniting to expel Muslim interlopers after centuries of conflict. But as even a cursory study of this period demonstrates divisions among Muslims and among Christians were ubiquitous. And Ibn Martinish was similar to Muslim rulers throughout Islamdom and his use of Christian mercenaries and his alliances with Christians. Like Salah Hadin in the East is doing exactly the same thing. Why then does this treatment of this particular figure focus so extensively on his lineage and seek in it an explanation for his actions? My answer is, because of colonialism, nationalism, and geographic determinism in the 19th and 20th century. Um, these, what you can see on the left is a passage from Reinhard Peter Dozy's Recherches sur l'histoire politique et littéraire de l'Espagne pendant le Moyen-Âge, in which he talks about um, uh, Ibn Martinich's national identity as a Spaniard. Um, and uh, on the right, you have a passage uh, page from my book um, in which I've highlighted some things that various 20th century authors have said about Ibn Martinish, which also emphasize his, um, his Spaniardness. That is, they attribute to him an identity that belongs to a nation state that was many centuries off from being formed. <clears throat> The visions of Ibn Martinish as decadent and close to Christians are ultimately rooted in the Almohad's descriptions of their rivals' irreligiosity, but they've been filtered through modern ideas about lineage, religion, and ethnicity. If, as Ibn al-Khatib claimed, the source of the narratives about Ibn Martinish bedding 200 slave girls under a single blanket or designating two days for drinking with his soldiers was a lost book by Ibn Sahib Salah, how should a scholar understand these stories? Ibn Sahib Salah is in the service of the Almohad Caliphs. He's eager to reinforce an image of Ibn Martinish's debauched, lascivious, and drunk in order to highlight his lack of piety and righteousness, and in contrast to the Almohads, who conscientiously enjoined the good and forbade the wrong. Fixating on Ibn Martinish's Christian soldiers and friends also reinforced his classification as an infidel who had to be conquered. But imagining, as modern scholars have done, that this made Ibn Martinish Spanish or a Christian reflects a misreading of the Almohad sources and a projection of modern day attitudes toward Islam, ethnicity, and nationalism. Um, so the thing that happens when we have these, these kinds of uh, 19th and 20th century sources that imagine that the medieval past is the immediate precursor to and foundation of modernity is that um, this reifies various ideas like the idea of the war on terror or the clash of civilizations. So on the left, you have um, Spanish president Jose Maria Aznar um, dressed as his hero, the Cid, um, in 1987, long before he became president. It's really an extraordinary picture. Um, and on the right, uh, you have a quote 
um, uh, from a speech that he gave in September 2004 after the Madrid bombings in March 2004 and after he lost his re-election campaign. He said, Spain's problem with al-Qaeda and terrorism did not begin with the Iraq crisis. It is necessary to go back to the beginning of the 8th century when Spain was invaded by the Moors and refused to become another part of the Islamic world, launching a long battle to recover its identity. So in this case, the Reconquista isn't over yet, right? And in fact, this is part of what I mean about the, the surprising presence of Ibn Bardanish and uh, his relevance. In more recent years, there have been explicit calls for a Nueva Reconquista, a new reconquest, rejecting Muslim immigrants in Spain and politically correct attitudes toward Islam in favor of a militant return to an imagined medieval Christian national identity. And this has found surprising appeal at the polls as the ultra-right party Vox has swept into power across Spain. In 2019, Vox won the largest share of the votes in the region of Murcia, that is Ibn Martinisha's region, making it the only region in Spain dominated by this party. Vox's leadership describes the Middle Ages as a period of glory when Spain saved Europe by fighting Islam and promises to reassert a unified Christian identity against encro the encroaching forces of secularism and Islam that it sees as threatening Europe anew. So in April 2019, Santiago Abascal, who you can see on the bottom left there, the leader of Vox, launched his campaign at Covadonga, the site of a much mythologized battle between the Umayyad armies and a small band of Visigothic fighters. Um, and he did so in front of a statue of Pelayo, uh, a Hispano-Visigothic nobleman who is said to have founded the Kingdom of Asturias in 718 in response to the Islamic conquests and is imagined to have started the process that would eventually be called the Reconquista, um, a mythical historiographic construct that imagined the Visigoths as forefathers to, Christians, to Spain's Christian kingdoms who fought across seven centuries to free themselves from the domination of foreign Muslims. And narratives of Palaio's heroic resistance first appear in the ninth and 10th century in Latin chronicles, um, and they're then connected to the idea of the Reconquista and the modern state of Spain much later. But the statue that you see here was installed under Franco in 1964 as a monument to the birth of Christian Spain. This is a fascist monument with a fascist ideal. And this is where um, Vox uh, proclaimed its, uh, its, its the beginning of its campaign. So um, where does Ibn Mardanish fit into in these kinds of narratives? Very neatly, um, this is an article uh, from 2018 um, by uh, a man named Sebastian Roa, who is a police detective in Valencia um, who writes novels, including historical novels about Ibn Mardanish. Um, but this is an article that appeared in the right-wing Spanish newspaper ABC. Um, for those who see Islam as dangerous and the Reconquista as heroic history, Ibn Mardanish's alliance with Christians against Muslim invaders offers a narrative that can assimilate some of Andalusi history into a Christian Spanish framework. So Sebastián Roa published his novel called La Loba de, de Al-Andalus, The She-Wolf of Al-Andalus, in 2012. And um, it focused on Ibn Martinish's wife and, and includes much of the narrative of his loyalty to Christians, his enmity to the Almohads found in historical sources. He's described as descended from Christians, brave and loyal to his Christian allies, 
devoted to fighting the fearsome military machine of the Almohads, powered by fanaticism who have abandoned their African mountains to attack the lovers of the cross. Literally, my translation. Um, The Christians are too caught up in their own rivalries to stop the Almohads. Only Ibn Mardanish in this vision can save Spain from a terrible fate. A vision of invading hordes from Africa carried particular meaning in the moment when the book was published in 2012. Of course, in 2011, the year before the book was published, record numbers of Tunisians and other North Africans fleeing the instability caused by the Arab Spring began to arrive in Southern Europe. Um, And in the years that followed the publication of this book, the number of migrants continued to increase. Um, And the territories of Valencia and Murcia, which Ibn Mardanish ruled, are um, the places with the most substantial number of immigrants alongside Catalonia um, uh, on the Iberian Peninsula, and some 42% of them working in uh, in agricultural areas um, in these territories are of African origin. So this rise in immigration has contributed to a backlash that has brought a wave of ultra-right parties campaigning on anti-immigration agendas to power. So Ibn Mardanish has become steadily more visible in popular culture in exactly the same years that Islamophobic and anti-immigrant discourse has increased. This article, I've just translated a few pieces of it here, presents uh, the Wolf King as the scourge of the jihadis of the 12th century. It describes the Almohads as ISIS, as Daesh, and Ibn Mardanish as someone who hated radical Islam. Um, And then it trots out the same stories that we've seen again and again at this point about him speaking romance, dressing like a Christian, allowing the construction of churches, drinking, and other scarcely Moorish pleasures, according to Roa. So Ibn Mardanish and the Almohads are assessed following the same pattern that Mahmoud Mamdani detected in the op-ed pages of the New York Times after 9-11, in which, quote, good Muslims are modern, secular, and westernized, but bad Muslims are doctrinal, anti-modern, and virulent. Thus, the Almohads are imagined as terrorists fixated on killing Christians, and Ibn Mardanish is celebrated as good, i.e. secular or assimilated Muslim. These portrayals omnipresent in popular histories, local commemorations, and news reports, and also in the cartoon published in 2006 by the municipality of Murcia for its school children on the right, um, uh, give a really strong sense. You can see Ibn Mardanish is the one in blue, dressed like a Christian on a big horse with a straight sword, and the Almohads are the dark-skinned horde teeming around him and threatening the viewer yourself um, with staffs and long beards and, and turbans. Um, and in the background, you can see the Castillejo of, of Ibn Mardanish. So um, what this does essentially is um, makes it very clear who the hero is, right? The hero is the medieval hero wearing a sword, carrying a sword, wearing armor, bravely fighting on horseback, even though he's vastly outnumbered. And the bad guys, foreign, terrifying, a threat, not only to him, but to the viewer as well. Um, And uh, in 1983, Murcia launched its festival of Moros y Cristianos, um, Moors and Christians, with a series of six different kabilas or, or tribes, um, and one of them is called the tribe of Ibn, Ibn Mardanish. This is where the shield that you saw at the beginning of the presentation comes from. And here's some of the other regalia that they use. Um, uh, his, 
Ibn Rajanisha's fierce resistance to the Almohads has made him one of the good Andalusi Muslims who can be celebrated today by historians and regional governments alike. No doubt Ibn Rajanisha would be puzzled by his depiction in sources across the centuries and by these Murcians purporting to dress up like him and his retinue, and the irony of a group of people dressing like Orientalist paintings to imitate a figure criticized in his own time for dressing as a Christian is just too rich. So Ibn Mardanisha's own cultural production, as we've seen, sought to connect his dynasty to the East, while later writers created a new lineage for him that emphasized his difference from actors in the East. Um, this book, Oh, hang on, I'll just show you this too. This um, also in 2019, there's an unprecedented three exhibits in Murcia dedicated to Ibn Mardanish. So something I could not have foreseen when I began this project um, and was briefly terrified by because I thought I was gonna get scooped, but no, their, their perspective was quite different from mine. Um, uh, one focused on Monteagudo, his Castillejo and his Castillo um, uh, outside of Murcia. Um, the one in the middle brought together more than 200 objects from all across Spain relating to his dynasty, which was great, except that I'd already gone all across the, the peninsula searching for these individual objects. Like it would have been a lot easier if I just waited for the exhibit. Um, and then the third looks at his historical memory in, in contemporary Murcia and beyond. Um, and the vision of the Minority Nation, this third exhibit as fundamentally Murcian, a local hero whose name adorns the local soccer team who are called the Lobos, road races, street signs, is supported by the ways in which he ties into both a multicultural vision of the Spanish past in which Muslims could play an important role in the construction of the nation and an anti-foreigner agenda in which Muslims from North Africa constitute the true risk to Spanish identity. Both of these constructions of Ibn Mardanish imagine him as fundamentally different from Muslims elsewhere, genealogically, religiously, ethnically. Yet, as the exhibit down the street at the archaeological museum shows through the objects collected from his realm, Ibn Mardanish's material culture connected him more closely to the Islamic East than that of any previous ruler in Al-Andalus. As I've argued here, material culture can encode ideology and reveal connections across space and time. What tracing Ibn Mardanisha's material culture shows in the incorporation of distant inspiration through processes of dynamic transformation is the interpenetration of ideas and forms, people and materials across the Mediterranean. Ibn Mardanish, the Almohads, the kings of Castile, Sicily, and Aragon all fought and allied to distinguish themselves as righteous and powerful. And their battles and their treaties served as conduits for the movement of people, ideas, and goods. <clears throat> the loss of Al-Andalus and the emergence of teleological narratives of Christian success and Muslim failure began to create the still potent vision of Al-Andalus as a place apart, distinct from other regions in what are now called the Middle East and Europe. This was further exacerbated by the imposition of enlightenment binaries in what Bruno Latour called a process of purification that separated the world into a series of dualisms predicated most importantly on modern and non-modern. This, this scaffolding of modern, medieval, Western, non-Western, secular, religious is pernicious and distorting everywhere, but its failures are particularly visible in the discourse surrounding Al-Andalus, which is alternately forced into one side or the other of these dichotomies. If, following Latour, we allow for more than two modes of description, the myriad connections that link Ibn Mardanish, his rivals, allies, and successors, 
the objects they traded and gifted, the men they employed, the women they married, the buildings they constructed, map a world of dynamic links, of flows, of transformations and continuities. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.